Grace and peace, beloved. My name is Isaac Adams, as Matt said, and I bring you greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of Iron City Church in Birmingham, Alabama. As Matt was just talking about, that's where I serve as lead pastor. Uh, I'm brand new there. In fact, as of this past Thursday, I have officially been there for one month. Um, Iron City was kind enough to let me come and not preach for the first three months of my ministry there, and they gave me these three months so I could simply sit and learn and see how the congregation operates, see how they work. Uh, So I want to thank you for bearing with me because this is the first time I've preached since the move. And uh, Matt was kind enough to let me shake off the rust up here and grease up the wheels before I return to your home state and uh, a pulpit awaiting me there. Uh, Friends, I just want to thank you for having me this weekend. Thank you for praying for Iron City Church. Thank you for the time yesterday. I was reflecting on it. I was just so encouraged by the questions you were asking. Uh, Yeah, the times we got to laugh and uh, weep and pray together. So thank you for that. Thank you for praying for us. And as we sit under the ministry of the word now, let me pray for us one more time. Let's pray together. Oh God, we're reminded of our unity and that we pray to you, our Father. Oh Lord, we pray to the same dad because we're part of the same family. We pray knowing that we are indwelt by the same spirit and saved by the same son and trust in the same scriptures. Oh Lord, help us to see why these matters of unity matter. Help us most of all to see and enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In their August 2021 issue, The Atlantic published an article about how America has fractured into four conflicting parts. The article was of interest to me given my work with United We Pray and given that the authors had ties to Birmingham. The article's thesis stated that people in the United States no longer agree on the nation's purpose, values, history, or meaning. And then the article poses a question as haunting as it is simple. Is reconciliation possible? Is reconciliation possible? Friends, I wonder if you've asked a similar question these past couple years. As debates have raged about COVID-19 and its attendant restrictions, or race relations, or politics, I wonder if you've asked a similar question, is reconciliation possible? Is reconciliation possible? What do you think? More importantly, what, what does God think? Turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I think it's on page 19, 918 of those pew Bibles around you. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 16 this morning of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, a city in modern-day Turkey. And Paul wrote the letter a couple of decades after Jesus was crucified and was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven And Paul specifically wrote the letter while he was in jail. If you look right there at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. And Paul is probably referring to the house arrest he was under in Rome. You can read more about that in Acts 28 if you'd like. 
And just a note here, beloved, uh, that with almost this passing comment about being a prisoner, Paul reminds us early on that the Christian life is not a life free from suffering. Uh, He reminds us that if you're a Christian, you will suffer for Jesus at some point, multiple points probably, in your life. If you're a Christian, you will suffer for Jesus at some point, probably multiple points in your life. And yet, even as we suffer, we can bless others. We can encourage them. We can remind them of the truth. That's what, that's what Paul does here in this letter before us. Uh, Paul was reminding the Ephesians of the beauty and the bigness of the gospel, the wideness of it. Which is to say that Paul made the point that not only is salvation free in Jesus Christ, it is free to all. Jew and Gentile. In this letter to the Ephesians, Paul hammers on the fact that Jesus has saved people from these two groups who historically hated one another. And in so doing, Jesus not only reconciled them to God, but he also reconciled them to one another. In other words, because Jews and Gentiles who turned from their sins and trusted in Christ were now united to Christ, they were therefore now united to each other. Enemies. Now brothers. Foes, now family, divided, now one. Beloved, is reconciliation possible? Paul thought so. And he thought this kind of reconciliation was an incredible thing, a glorious thing, something that displayed the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So in light of all this, what would Paul tell the Ephesians? Follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And in honor of God's word, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way 
into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Please be seated. Friends, this is God's word, and here's the main point of this portion of it we're considering today. Remember, we are one body with many gifts helping each other grow up in Jesus. If you're a note taker or you wanted to tweet the main point of this sermon, this is what you should tweet. Remember, we are one body with many gifts helping each other grow up in Jesus. Edgefield Church, this is the exhortation I would leave you with this Lord's Day. Remember, we are one body with many gifts helping each other grow up in Jesus. And this morning, we're going to simply break down this sentence and walk through it. So my first point is this. Remember, we are one body. Remember, we are one body. Point number one, remember, we are one body. This point is going to cover verses one to six, and this will be my longest point. This is what Paul says in verse four. We are one body. Look with me. He says in chapter four, verse four, there is, so not there might be, or there could be, or there used to be, but there is one body and one spirit. Just as you, so the you Paul is talking to are the Christians there at the church of Ephesus. You can look at chapter 1, verse 1, there he, where he makes clear, Paul says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. Beloved, what Paul is saying is that God is everything in the church. He is the realist reality the all-encompassing essence tying us together. When we show up to church, we're not worshiping different gods. Our buildings aren't Greek temples in which we worship an array of different gods. Christians aren't pantheists, but monotheists. We trust in one God, the same God who is over us and moves through us and is in us. Did you see the reference to the Spirit in this verse? Verse 4, this is the Spirit of the Lord. We see the Lord in there in verse 5. When he talks about the Lord, Paul is talking about Jesus, the Son of the Father, of the Father whom he mentions in verse 6. So there it is, verses 4, 5, and 6, the Trinitarian shape of this passage, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons united in one God. The same God whose name we are all baptized in. Did you see that in verse 5? We share one baptism. Friends, all Christians should be baptized. We should all know the experience and the picture of being buried with Christ in our sins and being raised again to new life. So if you're here and you're a Christian, but you haven't yet obeyed the command to be baptized, the pastors of this church would love to talk to you about that. They'd love to talk to you about sharing in the family immersion, the one baptism of our one God. Beloved, we're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We're baptized into the name of our God who has one people, 
And friends, this, isn't this truth about God's united being? Isn't this what God told his people when he gave them the law again in Deuteronomy 6? Isn't this what Jesus retold the people when he, gave them, when he was asked what the greatest commandments were in Mark 12? In Deuteronomy and in Mark, God doesn't just start rattling off commandments. No, he says, first, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I mean, have you ever asked yourself why God says that before he gives the commands? Before he explains what the greatest of those commandments are? Why does God talk about being one? A pastor named David Gibson said it. It's because God is teaching us that he is undivided. He goes on to say, and because God is like that, then he must be approached and worshipped by an undivided person. All your heart. All your soul, all your strength. In other words, all of you. Every single bit. God is not pulled in different directions, so neither should we be in our worship of him. Real faith and trust in God are not compartmentalized. God is not looking for a person who can give him their strength, mending the church roof or serving in short-term missions while their greatest loves and deepest desires are directed elsewhere. End quote. And friends, what I want you to see is that's a great quote about God being worshipped by an undivided individual. But the same truth applies not just to the individual person, but also to God's people corporately. In other words, God is to be worshipped not just by an undivided person, but also by an undivided people. He is not pulled in different directions. And neither should we be as we worship him. God is not looking for a people who can sing him a few songs, but really their greatest allegiance is their political party or their, eth- or their ethnicity or their socioeconomic class. Right? So we shouldn't come to church thinking, well, I'll show up to church, but I'm really going to only love and be friends with the other Republicans. I'll show up to church, but I'm only really going to love and be friends with people who talk like me or who look like me or who were a part of Edgefield originally, or Trinity originally. No, friends, there is one church, Edgefield Church. What's more, in Matthew 5, Jesus himself said that if you love those who love you, what what good is that? Even sinners do that, but the church should be different. As one preacher said, the local church should reflect the truth about God. If it is divided, it teaches everyone that Christ is divided. And friends, when it comes to the schoolroom that the church is, let us remember that the world is an observing student. And didn't Jesus say in John 13, 35, that the world would know we are his followers by the way we love one another? And didn't Jesus pray in John 17, 21, that we would be one so that the world would know the Father sent him? Beloved, our unity isn't just glorious, it's important. If you care about unity, you should care about racism, sexism, political tribalism, any ism that tempts people toward wrongly valuing and elevating distinctions within the body. I mean, isn't this what James says in James 2? My brothers, show no partiality. And he goes on to talk about the sin of classism. 
And he does that because Christians should be and are one. Brothers and sisters, our unity in Christ means that when we show up to church before we are white or black, Hispanic or Asian, before we are rich, middle class, or poor, before we are Republican or Democrat, before we are men or women, we who have turned from our sins and trusted in Christ are all Christians. We're one. That's our most fundamental identity. That's what we show a divided and dividing world as we shine in stark contrast as a light to the world, a world that is asking, is reconciliation possible? Friends, our unity is not only glorious, it's not only important, it's also hard. It it takes work. Now, to be clear, the main work it takes has already been been done. Uh, Jesus accomplished our unity at the cross. I want you to see this, so flip back to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Look with me, starting In verse 13, Paul writes, but now in Christ Jesus, you, he's talking to the Gentiles, to non-Jews, Paul says, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Friends, Paul goes to great lengths in the first half of his letter to make clear that all people are born spiritually dead. We are without hope. We do what we want instead of what God wants. That's essentially what sin is, doing what we want instead of what God wants. But Jesus came and lived the perfect life. He always did what God wanted. And though he lived the perfect life, he died in the place of sinners like you and me. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment sinners deserved, and he was raised so that anyone, doesn't matter how bad, how poor, how rich you are, anyone who turns from their sins and trusts in him can be forgiven of their sins. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, do that today. Kids, if you're here and you've not turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, do that today. And for those of us who have turned to God, notice what Paul is making clear. He's saying that we're not only saved from sin, we're also saved to God's people. We're not just released from something, we're bound to something else, namely God's people. This is the work of Jesus. By bringing us to God through his death and resurrection, he also brought us to one another. So if Jesus connected you to God and he's connected me to God, well, we're connected. That is what Jesus has done by his cross. And friends, I emphasize Jesus' work to make clear that unity isn't something we create. Lots of churches think they need to create unity between their people. But no, Jesus has done that already. Paul makes that so clear. It's interesting from chapter 2, verse 11, to chapter 3, verse 21, right up to the brink of chapter 4, the only 
imperative verb given. As Paul talks about this mystery of the gospel, this unity we have in Christ, the only imperative verb given is to remember. Paul says it in chapter 2, verse 11, therefore remember. From then on, he gives, no, gives us no commands until chapter 4 because we don't have to make unity. We maintain it. That's what Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 4. Did you see that? Having told us what we are, as he does in so many of his letters, Paul then turns to say, be what you are. Chapter 4, verse 1, look with me. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Past tense. How do we do that? Verse 2, by walking with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, not create, but maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Friends, if you want sinners to get angry, just put them around people who are different from them, who have different sins, who think different thoughts, who fight different battles than the ones you want them to fight. Friends, church would be really easy if everyone were just like us, but it wouldn't be glorious. There was never an, an award-winning orchestra that only had one instrument. A beloved church would be easy if everyone were just like us, but Jesus has saved lots of people aren't, who aren't, and so we need to be humble. You want to maintain unity, Edgefield Church, be humble. As Matt said, consider others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We spoke about race yesterday, and let me just say this. You may not have it all figured out when it comes to talking about race, but here is one thing you can have. It will change how you speak, listen, and love. Without this one thing, you can have all racial knowledge in the world and still be a noisy gong. What is it? Humility. Give me the humble cat over the racial know-it-all any day. Friends, be humble and be gentle. You want to maintain unity, Edgefield Church, be gentle. I'm a young man with young kids, and I remember when we brought our second baby home, the main command I gave my two-year-old was be gentle, be gentle, be gentle, be gentle with your brother. Paul is urging us with the same command, be gentle and be patient. The first description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is that love is patient. So if someone at the church is driving you crazy, it doesn't necessarily mean you should leave the church. It means you have an opportunity an opportunity to be patient. After all, beloved, this is a radical thought, but someone else here is probably being patient with you. I mean, I know it's crazy, but could you be the one who is driving someone else crazy in this church? Could it be that you're not the only one who's had to forbear with others in this church, but that people have had to forbear with you? 
Friends, we could keep going, but we need to get going to our next point. But let me ask you this before we do. Are you eager? Are you zealous to maintain unity in this church, as Paul says in verse 3? Matt and the other pastors, do you urge the children of this household to walk in a manner worthy of of their calling? Beloved, pride, roughness, impatience, short tempers, and being easily offended and throwing in the towel in on one another because, hey, you hurt my feelings, all of that is beneath the blood-bought calling Jesus has given us. Remember, we are one body. That was the first part of our sentence. Here's the second. With many gifts. Remember, we are one body with many gifts. Point number two, with many gifts. With many gifts. This point will cover verses 7 through 12. A second ago I said Jesus has given us a calling, but that's not all he's given. Look, with, look back at our text. In verses 1 to 3, Paul tells us how we can walk as if there really is one body according to verse 4 and one God according to verse 6. And then Paul says in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended afar above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Okay, so if you're reading this and you're like, I have no idea what this means. Just know there are a lot of people in the room thinking the exact same thing, including the preacher Or at least I used to before I studied the passage. Friends, basically in this section, Paul is describing the diverse gifts Jesus, who has ascended into heaven now, is giving to his church. Paul is describing the diverse gifts Jesus, who has ascended into heaven now, is giving his church. So in verse 7, when Paul says grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, Paul is not saying, hey, Jesus saved you a little bit, but he saved this guy a lot of bit. Now, we all have the same amount of saving grace, but he's given us different gifts to build up our churches. And they're called gifts or grace because we don't deserve them. We didn't earn them. Spiritual gifts are not superpowers we conjured up. Spiritual gifts are just that. Gifts. And lots of passages make this clear. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, 1 Peter 4. But Paul goes to an interesting passage in this next verse, verse 8. There he alludes to Psalm 68. And I say alludes because Paul doesn't exactly quote Psalm 68, but the essence of this psalm is that a military victor has the right to receive gifts from the people he's conquered. And in his incarnation and death, Christ left heaven and came down. He descended to earth, as verse 9 says. And in his resurrection, he was raised in triumph over the grave. And he ascended into heaven. You can read the book of Hebrews for more on Christ's ascension. Or just look at verse 10 in our passage. But here's what I want us to notice. As the victor, Christ has 
the right to receive gifts from those he's conquered, his captives. And all of us who trust in Christ are now his captives. We are bound to him. So Jesus is our friend, yes, but he is also our master and Lord too. He is the conqueror. And so Jesus has the right to receive from us everything. But notice here in verse 8, Paul talks not about what Jesus can receive from us, but what he has given us. Look there in verse 8 at that last line where it says, he gave gifts to men. The word for men there can refer to both men and women. Friends, Jesus doesn't take from his people. He gives. Idols take. Jesus gives. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, out of his fullness, he gives. He supplies for his people. And the gifts this passage highlights are there in verse 11, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now, I don't have time to dive into all the nuances here about these different offices, but suffice it to say that I think the apostles and prophets refer not to an office in the church that exists today, but to the foundation the church is built on, namely the Scriptures, written by the apostles and prophets, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. There, Paul makes clear that Christ himself is the cornerstone of this household of God, and this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And if this doesn't make sense to you about apostles and prophets and captives, feel free to email me at matt.mccullough at edgefieldnashville.org. Send me your hardest questions. I will get right back to you. But on a serious note, friends, maybe what will be clearer than my speech when it comes to this text is our song. Just grab your bulletin. Look at this song we're going to sing after this sermon. The church is one foundation. We're going to sing in this first verse. The church is one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. We are a new creation by water. So there's the baptism we talked about earlier. And the word the prophets and apostles. From heaven he came and taught us, so Jesus descended, what perfect love can be. Through life and death he sought us and rose the ascension to set us free. A lot of theology in one verse. Friends, what a conqueror. What a captain. What a savior. One who gives gifts to his people. Brothers and sisters, do you realize in that, in giving you, Matt Givens, Will Harvey, Bill Herman, Seth Jones, Matt McCullough, Shaka Mitchell, and Jonathan Worsley, you realize in giving you these shepherds that it's been like Christmas here at Edgefield Church. Y'all who play Christmas music before Thanksgiving, go ahead and play it. After all, shepherds and pastors, teachers, they are gifts, the text says. My question for you, brothers and sisters, is do you treat your elders as if they're gifts? Because they are. From Jesus. 
Friends, are you a joy to your pastors or a thorn in their side? Do you happily trust and submit to your leaders in such a way that makes you a delight to shepherd? Friends, let me tell you as a pastor, I think 2020 and 2021 will lead to more pastors retiring than we have ever seen. Between racial strife and a contentious political election and a virus that has now been politicized, pastors are just trying to keep it together. And they are getting bitten by their sheep. Now, Matt has told me nothing of this. For all I know, he is the happiest pastor on earth, pastoring the happiest congregation on earth. But on the off chance that one or two of you are actually, you know, sinners, <laughs> and sometimes you're not that nice to your pastors, let me just say that being a pastor is really hard. And when you email a pastor with a really mean or hard note, just remember that your pastor is flesh and blood too. And like a five-year-old will speak to their parents as if their parents don't have feelings, well, church members can do that too when they forget that their pastors are gifts given to them for their good. Friends, your pastors are here to minister with y'all and teach y'all how to minister. Ministry just isn't just their job, it's everyone's job together. And one of your main jobs in this church is helping one another follow Jesus. In other words, in the church of Jesus Christ, we minister to one another that we might help each other grow up in Jesus. Remember, we are one body with many gifts helping each other grow up in Jesus. Helping each other grow up in Jesus. Point number three, helping each other grow up in Jesus. This point is our last, and it'll cover verses 13 to 16. But let's start reading in verse 12. Why did Jesus give us gifts? Chapter 4, verse 12 says, He gave us gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may, may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love." Friends, God has given a diversity of gifts to his church so that we could mature as Christians. And the main mark that you are growing as a Christian is an increase in love. Love for God. Love for his word. Love for his people. Maturity was the aim of Paul's ministry. So in Colossians 1, Paul writes, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we, we don't want to be little kids in the faith. We, be child, we don't want to have childlike faith, but we don't want to be childish in our faith. 
We don't want to be unstable and believe false teaching. No, no, we want to grow firm in the faith. We want to be like that happy person in Psalm 1 who is not like the chaff that the wind drives away, but is like a tree planted by streams of water. And my prayer for you, Edgefield Church, is that you all would be a forest with a lot of different kinds of trees all rooted in Christ. And one of the main ways we stay rooted is by speaking the truth to one another lovingly, as verse 15 says. I had a friend who said this. I think it's helpful. He said, disunity in a church is the result of a lot of necessary conversations never being had. Disunity is the result of a lot of necessary conversations never being had. And you know what? So is heresy. Friends, speak the truth to one another. A, a healthy church isn't preserved by a good statement of faith or even good preaching, necessary as those things are. A healthy church is preserved by you all speaking the truth to one another. Thousands of conversations throughout the week. Hundreds of conversations between you all. And each part of that is necessary. Did you see how Paul said in verse 16, when each part is working? Friend, if you've ever felt like you don't know your place here at the church, or that the important places are the ones that are visible and up front, friend, if you've ever thought that, think again. What, what, what makes you valuable in this church is not what you do for the church, but what Christ has done for you. Namely, that he saved you. Whether you're an elbow or a knee or an arm, each part of the body is necessary. And when it's working, when it's working well, the body builds itself up in love. Isn't that a striking image? A healthy church is like an ecosystem feeding itself. It's self-sustaining as it inhales and exhales love. I don't think I've ever done this in a sermon, but the church's one foundation is so good. I'm just, I want you to look at it again. It says, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are a new creation by water, baptism, and the word, prophets and apostles. From heaven he came, descended, and taught us what perfect love can be. Friends, in Christ, we are free to live and free to love and to love one another. This is what makes racism such a stench in the nostrils of God. It is the antithesis of love. 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 Friends, I'm thankful that yesterday we got to talk about race and racism and unity and diversity. I pray you never stop talking about those things. But make sure that you remember that diversity isn't an end of it in of itself. You want your church to look like heaven, all tri tribes and tongues. That's great. Just remember that hell is diverse too. So as you pursue unity, make sure that above all you love one another. 
Because you can have a diverse church without love. Down the street at the Titan Stadium looks really diverse on a, on a Sunday football game. Until someone spills their drink on someone else. Those people don't love each other. We're trying to do something deeper in the church than just have a nice college brochure with lots of different looking people on it. We're trying to help people love one another. Friends, Paul has called us to unity, shown us the gift of diversity and the fruit of both unity and diversity working together. It's love. And may it be far from you, Edgefield Church, to have all diversity, all multiculturalism, but have not love. Friends, without love, we're nothing. Praise God, Jesus is our everything, including the answer to that simple and yet ever-recurring question, is reconciliation possible? We began our time with that haunting question that people in this country have been asking in some sense since its inception, is reconciliation possible? The unique answer in Christ, not apart from Jesus, but with him and in him and through him. Beloved, praise be to God that the answer is yes. Friends, do you see the church is God's unique response to a question a divided and dividing world is asking? What a privilege it is to answer that question. And the answer isn't just yes for Americans. Being American has nothing to do with it. Amen, Jonathan. No, as Pastor Mark Dever has said, the nation is an experiment. The church is a certainty, one that will last forever. And the church of Jesus Christ is made up of people, as we sang, from all tribes, all countries, all tongues, people who share one thing in common. They have turned from their sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we are one body with many gifts, helping each other grow up into him. Let's pray. Father, as we think of our conqueror, our captain, our savior, Jesus Christ, who rose for us, Lord, we praise you that we will rise with him one day, fully and finally. And you will have one people who love you and one another perfectly. Lord, as we are just a dress for her soul for that main, main event, help us to do that however imperfectly and as faithfully as we can. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.